Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope you'll rate, review, subscribe, and share this with a friend if you find this of interest. Today, my guest uh, for our conversation is David McIntosh. He's the controversial head of the Club for Growth. He's the president of that organization. He's also someone who's, uh, you know, a, frankly, a, a very mild-mannered Midwestern man. You would not think that this is someone who has attracted the kind of fire and brimstone attacks uh, particularly from the left, but from some on the right as well, uh, over the course of his career. But he's also someone who is deeply engaged in the fight on a number of different conservative issues. In addition to being a, a solid fiscal conservative, he's also a social conservative himself, and he has some insight to offer a little bit on the way that Republican uh, politicians are approaching that type of issue. He's someone who's both been allied with and at odds with the former president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, during the course of the past several years, picking candidates and choosing which ones to back within primaries, sometimes together and sometimes apart. He's someone who can talk to us a lot about their plans going forward into next year's uh, controversial primaries and and uh, ones that will really have a significant ramification for who ends up representing different major states in Congress. He's someone who is very engaged in this going back to his experience in the US Congress as part of the Gingrich revolution wave years. Uh, I first met him, frankly, all the way back uh, in 1995 uh, when I was a teenager, and uh, he's someone who I've stayed in touch with since uh, and uh, and believe is a very good and honorable man. David McIntosh at the center of a maelstrom when it comes to the conversation about the future of the right in America the president of the Club for Growth, coming up next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news, twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. David McIntosh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's great to be with you, Ben. So I don't know if you have any recollection of this, but I actually met you very early in your career uh, when you were, I believe you were attending, you were either, it, I can't remember if it was the Wyrick lunch or if it was Grover Norquist ATR meetings. Uh, and I was uh, an intern at human events at the time. Um, and oh, that's wonderful. And I still remember, I just remember you being kind of part of that, the, the group of rising stars. Obviously there was that book uh, written at the time that included you as, as uh, one of the figures back then that was uh, someone who would have such an impact, uh, was expected to have a significant impact on politics. You certainly have. It's not necessarily in the way that you might have thought about at the time. Right, right, right. The, yeah, God had a different path for me in mind. 
which, which meant losing a couple races and, and taught me some important lessons about politics then. Do you think you're the most, uh, you know, outside of the people who've gone total swampish and become lobbyists and the like, it seems to me that you have to be considered probably, uh, you know, one of the most important and significant uh, former members of Congress, just in terms of the political impact you've been able to have in the past several cycles. Well, that, that's very kind. Thank you. Um, I, I think of it as I, I fight for and stand for a certain set of ideas of limited government, individual freedom, capitalism, free markets. And and I think it's those ideas that, that are what let us have influence um, mm -hmm. more than anything else. Uh, you know, the Club for Growth has gone through some iterations. And obviously, you know, it has become... You know, over the years, it has uh, attracted its own foes in terms of people who, you know, uh, find you discomforting, uh, particularly, you know, folks within the establishment, but then also people who have, you know, different priorities when it comes to the issues that you mentioned within the uh, coalition of the right. What do you view the role of the club uh, in, the, in its current iteration under your leadership? What do you view its role and the role it has to play within primaries and within you know, trying to elevate people who you view as being solid fiscal conservatives. Yeah, um, I, I think that, and it's in a way been had that all along, but maybe with different emphasis. But, um, you know, at first it was winning primaries, trying to get a true conservative in when maybe there was a, an establishment figure or what we call rhino, more Democrat in the way they voted, even they're running as a Republican. And then we expanded to include that in getting some great leaders in the Senate, like Mike Lee and, and Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio. Um, ta uh, my good friend, Dr. Coburn, was a big, someone the club really helped get in and made an impact. Uh, and now, but if you think about it, some of the best things that the club did along the way were engage in the very first primary for people who go on to be leaders in our party. Mike Pence, for example, when he first ran in 2000, got the Club for Growth endorsement. Uh, Ron DeSantis, we endorsed and supported him in his very first primary for Congress. And you can, you can go on and on like that of people... Um, Folks that President Trump appointed into his cabinet, um, where we were very supportive. Mick Mulvaney, for example, mm -hmm. who became chief of staff and was budget director. So the way I share with people right now is we've become the largest super PAC other than the two leadership PACs, McCarthy and McConnell's PACs. Um, and we stand for broadly freedom, uh, limited government, free markets, a school choice, which is a way of bringing free markets into education. Uh, we support the digital assets, Bitcoin and those to, as a way to have economic freedom in the financial markets. But ultimately, and, and this to some ways becomes personal to me um, because I, I think it's my calling at this stage of life, uh, we're looking for the next generation of leaders. Mm -hmm. um, so Club for Growth has an affiliated foundation that runs a fellowship program where it's not political. We bring 40 to 50 young leaders in their 30s and 40s together 
we teach them about free markets. We give them a chance to, to learn some media training so they can go on podcasts like yours and, and talk to the media. And then they network with each other all over the country. And we keep bringing the alumni back year after year. So now we're up to 150 of them. They know each other. They call each other to compare notes. But a few of them have decided to run, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we get excited about that. Then the political part of the Club for Growth got engaged. You know, Josh Burkeen is an example out in Oklahoma. He was dead last in in the primary when we took a poll and the Club for Growth PACs came in. We supported him, helped him win that primary in a solid Republican seat. And he's going to be the next Tom Coburn, uh, a budget hawk who's going to look at all the wasteful spending. Um, and to me, that helping to identify, recruit, uh, mentor, elect a new generation of leaders who believe in America and the principles of freedom that have made us a great country and have the the wherewithal as strong leaders to carry on the fight here in Washington, where you where sometimes it feels like you're pushing a stone uphill all day long just to remind people that that we're a free country, right? We we're not we don't want to become a, a mirror of, of a big uh, industrial Europe or China. Um, and so that really is the mission of the Club for Growth. And along the way, I think we've been able to stop some of the worst ideas. Uh, one of our big donors told me the first time we met, he said, David, thank you for doing the Club for Growth. If it weren't for the Club for Growth, America would be Europe right now, meaning mm -hmm. we'd be a socialist leaning social democracy. And uh, that that's the mission we have. It's it's a big mission when you get into all the different places. But in some ways, it it's a reflection of what the Republican Party says it wants to be. And we're finding leaders who are truly committed to those ideals. The, the task of the fiscal conservative in Washington is certainly Sisyphean. I mean, if, you, if you're going to talk about something that feels, you know, uh, very difficult in pushing that rock up the hill, uh, I don't think that you could find a better example of it than those who think that the government should spend less as opposed to more. Um, particularly in this moment within the Republican Party, there has been uh, a growth, it seems, uh, certainly, you know, we've seen it, uh, you know, in times before, whether it was because of the war on terror or the, the uh, Cold War, uh, that, you know, we had the case for more military spending. But now there seem to be a lot of Republicans who are very averse to taking the kind of steps, the kind of fiscal steps that virtually anyone who looks at our entitlement picture will say is necessary in order to have any kind of sustainability going forward. Uh, David, I've got two very young girls, as you know, uh, a two and a half year old and a six week old. And when I look at them, I don't see people who are going to have any kind of entitlement structure available to them, given the track that we're currently going on and still enjoy the kind of prosperous American capitalist system that has been so good for so many people. Um, it seems to me that if those programs are still going to be around, the tax burden necessary, the changes that would have to happen, you know, look more like what Bernie Sanders would want than what fiscal conservatives would want. How do you make the case for fiscal conservatism to a group, a cohort that has basically taken the lesson inaccurate, in my view, um, that even dabbling or considering 
the kind of entitlement reforms that, say, Paul Ryan and, and other people before him push for is just anathema politically. So that's uh, a great question. And it's come up already in this election cycle um, where first President Biden uh, attacked Rick Scott, claiming that he was going to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. And sadly, um, Senator McConnell echoed that in, when he was back in Kentucky, where his job is to be the leader of the Republicans in the Senate and help Rick Scott get reelected so we can get as, to a as majority. Aside, he, does, he frequently yeah. seems and, to and not so sound you, like that, but, but right. I'll let you keep going. When you... When you <laughs> When you echo the the lies that Biden put out about there, you got to scratch your head and say this isn't about you as an individual, and and it's about building the majority for the whole mm -hmm. Senate and the Republicans. Um, I actually think the way Republicans should address this is to start going on offense against what the Biden administration is putting out there. But the president was the first one to say it: we're not going to do anything to touch Social Security, Medicare. Well, we have to point out that that means there's a Joe Biden cut in Social Security. It's about 10 years down the road. But what Joe Biden wants is to cut your Social Security, cut your Medicare by letting those automatic cuts go into place. And we Republicans want to save Social Security and save Medicare. This, by the way, came up back in the 90s when I was running. Um, one of the ways to save it is to include the principle of growth and say, right now the government takes your social security money and uses it to pay for all of these big spending programs that it has. Whether it's in, in foreign wars or whether it's in the handouts that we did for COVID, expanding the welfare state, that's what people's social security money goes to. Instead, we, would, we should say, we wanna actually invest it um, and, and use the power of compound interest rates to take that money and increase it over time so that 10 years from now, there'll still be money there and you won't have the Joe Biden automatic cuts in social security. That's the, when we go on offense with our ideas, that's how we win the public and the American people, particularly what sometimes we call them persuadable voters, but independent voters who could vote either way. And if all they hear is that Joe Biden's not going to touch Social Security and it's going to be OK, then they're going to say, that sounds good. But when we point out the truth and say, no, Joe Biden's going to do nothing. And that means in 10 years, the law says it's going to be cut. So Joe Biden's advocating a cut in Social Security. And, we, and unless we Republicans tell the voters that, they're never going to hear it. So that, that's my way. It's been my way of doing politics all the time. Put out the truth, be aggressive about it so that your opponents have to face the truth that they don't want the voters to know about. Let's talk for a moment about political tactics and what we've learned from the last couple of cycles. You can look back at 2022 and the sort of disappointing midterms that played out uh, for Republicans, you know, Certainly they have won the House, but there were so many disappointments. People who, you know, we all thought had a, a closer chance of winning. Certainly I thought a closer chance of winning, uh, you know, for a lot of conservatives across the country who ended up falling short. One of the things that struck me in looking back at a lot of the different campaigns that were run is that 
regardless of ideology, regardless of their positions, whether they were, you know, strong social conservatives or, you know, whether they had, you know, they were good on policy or they were perhaps weaker on policy. One of the things that stuck out to me was that a lesson a lot of these younger, newer candidates had taken, given that we had a plethora of candidates who had never run for any office at ever any level before, who were running statewide, either for, you know, governor or senator or other offices, was that they seem to have taken a lesson from the success of former President Trump that you don't have to do certain things in your campaign uh, that are viewed as kind of the, the typical approach, that you can be more about social media, earned media, and the like, uh, and less about the normal shoe leather working uh, nature of politics. What can be done to sort of adjust that and say, look, you know, social media is good, earned media is good, you know, maybe you can afford to, to spend less on ads if you do things like that, but there's certain things that are done in political campaigns that are done for a reason and that seem to be, you know, something that needs to be re-injected in the process as opposed to saying, you know, well, you know, having a campaign manager, that's just Washington consultant talk. Who's Who needs things like that? <laughs> yeah. And, and I've even heard some people tell me, oh, David, I, I really don't need to raise money into the campaign. We're just going to take our message there, walk door to door or get it out on social media. Um, I, I, I've become pr pretty direct with them <laughs> and say, no, <laughs> we, we win a lot of campaigns. We had a, we had a 71% win rate in the last election when Republicans mm -hmm. weren't doing that well, 85% in the election before. Um, the way you do it is you've got to run the mechanics of the campaign to do two things. One, get your message to the voters. So that means raise money to buy TV ads, buy radio ads, send mail pieces, and get on the new social media and digital. But we found over and over again, it's broadcast TV that has the biggest impact on changing people's minds about issues. So, and that's expensive. You gotta raise money for it. But the second thing that a lot of candidates forget and don't think about is you gotta get out the vote. The vote. Um, and the party is supposed to do that. Um, we didn't see a lot of great efforts um, on, by the national party to focus on get out the vote. State by state, it depended on how good they were. Um, and But in some places, like Pennsylvania, Nevada, California has been like this for a while, um, we allow the Democrats to go out and take advantage of these rules that allow you know, universal mail-out ballots. So they go out and they ballot harvest them. It's all legal. We have to say to ourselves, if that's the new rule, if basically you can take a three-pointer, you got to play by that rule and take the three-pointers rather than just the layups, mm -hmm. right? And so we're going to have to learn how to do our ballot harvesting in those states. I'll give you one example, and, and I'm pretty sure this candidate would be comfortable with me sharing it. In North Carolina, the party did its traditional effort uh, to get out the vote and did very well electing Ted Budd, uh, winning several judicial races that are huge for that state. The, mm -hmm. the, they had activist Democrat liberal judges that were overturning popular bills that the legislature passed. But we also had a congressional race there in the 13th district where 
two thirds of it was rural, solid Republican vote. We got all of that out with the traditional method, but there was a third of it that was suburban and city vote where liberals and independents were the dominant voters. Um, we, we did our usual method of helping they come to the vote and, and show up. What the Democrats did was that in North Carolina, there's kind of a limited way you can ballot harvest by making three calls to the people and making sure they get their vote in. It's the old um, vote early program yes. that we used to have in California. They did it in spades in, in its Wake County where the city of Raleigh was. And the turnout for them there was like twice as strong as everybody had expected. And that let them win narrowly in a Republican district that race. So lesson learned, we've got to do the same thing on our side, on the mechanics mm -hmm. and ballot harvest. Now, in a place like Pennsylvania or Nevada, where the rules, we realize the rules make it easier to cheat and commit fraud, we got to play by them and then elect Republican legislatures, Republican governors, and turn the rules back the way they have in Florida and Texas and Georgia into fair rules that make sure there's a lot less cheating that goes on. Mm -hmm. But until the rules change, we got to play by the new ones. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's a very good point. And I think that, frankly, there are a lot of Republicans who would have seen different outcomes if they had gone that route, as opposed to simply complaining about the new set of rules. Look, I know that you're a, a deeply pro-life person. It's always been something that I know that you've cared about. But there has really been a weaponized aspect, unfortunately, even coming from former President Trump, uh, regarding the role that abortion played in the midterms. Now, from my perspective, I think that that's uh, a shorthanded uh, and, and just very narrow view uh, that doesn't actually encompass what happened. I think that, you know, if abortion had mattered as much as national media claims that it did, Greg Abbott and Brian Kemp would not have won in the way that they did. Ron DeSantis's race would never have turned out the way that it did. Um, but at the same time, I can say that someone like Tudor Dixon might have performed a little better, you know, in Michigan if the abortion issue had not played the way that it did. Uh, and certainly Pennsylvania might have gone differently um, in, in a very narrow race uh, there. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you think, not as Club for Growth uh, uh, head, but as uh, just as a pro-life Republican, about the way that candidates ought to address this issue. Uh, because from my perspective, the advice that they're getting on kind of keeping it at arm's length uh, that a lot of people were saying in the run up to the last election was really foolhardy and abandoned the field to their Democratic opponents to define them in the most extreme way. So, um, and let me clarify, Ben, the, the Club for Growth doesn't take a position on pro-life. Yes, I'm well aware. We support pro-choice, pro-life candidates. Um, but you're right. I personally, I've always been pro-life in my beliefs, and and uh, that's just part of who I am. You're asking, I think, also a political strategy question, where the party told everybody, just pretend it's not an issue, mm -hmm. even though it was clear after the Supreme Court decision, uh, reversing Roe and turning back the policy on abortion to the states, um, that it was going to be an issue in the election. Uh, my advice to candidates on this is, if you, particularly if you're in a red state or uh, even a close marginal one, um, be 
very straightforward on what you believe is the right answer. Don't try to hide from it because then people think you don't have integrity, you're not being honest with them. And then go on offense. Point out that the Democrat opponent is so radical in their position that they want to have abortions even when the baby could be born alive in the ninth month. Now, that, there are very few of those compared to the amount of other abortions, but I know of no Democrat who is bold enough to say, no, I don't believe in that, right? Because mm -hmm. they're afraid of the pro-abortion lobby in their party. So you, you go on offense, point it out to them. If you're in a debate, they, they just start stuttering about that and can't answer it. Um, that's not what the party recommended. Now, in some cases where it's a, a blue district or a blue state, honestly, you want to go on offense on a different issue at that point where the majority of the people are not going to be with you. Um, don't lie about what you believe in, but quickly pivot to another set of issues where you're putting your Democrat opponent on, on defense. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder if you could walk me through a little bit what you anticipate about this coming cycle. The uh, Obviously, there's going to be a, a huge appetite uh, for uh, Republicans to uh, press their way forward in the Senate. And the map is certainly uh, friendly for them, uh, given the the makeup of the of the body and and the people who are going to be up this cycle. Uh, and yet, you also have you know kind of this snake bit attitude of we thought we were going to have a good cycle last time. You know, what do we do to avoid the mistakes? So, from your perspective, what can be done, particularly in the primaries that are already essentially kicked off at this point in a lot of ways? Uh, to ensure that the coming cycle for uh, conservatives looks a lot better than the last one when it comes to the candidates you're putting forward uh, against a lot of incumbent Democrats that people in Washington view as vulnerable? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. and something that we're laser focused on here at the Club for Growth and with our PACs. Um, I'll, I'll use one example in Indiana where it's an open seat. Um, we knew early on that we thought Jim Banks was the right candidate. He's solid, conservative across the board, and he has the ability to put together a campaign and win. Um, so we got behind him. We endorsed him. Some other people wanted a more moderate candidate to run and who could also raise money and, and do a good candidate. I th we felt that would do a disservice and an opportunity in a very conservative state to have somebody like Jim who would really voice and represent the people there. Um, the, but we're also looking at about five states where we might have an opportunity to pick up a seat. Uh, West Virginia with Manchin, uh, Montana with Tester, Michigan with an open seat there, Arizona, if the mm -hmm. Democrats are split uh, and Cinema's running as an independent, and Nevada, which we almost won last time with Adam Laxalt, and if we actually do that ballot harvesting, I think we will win the next time. And we've got a governor there who will make sure that cheating won't occur. Um, so those are five great opportunities. Oh, I guess a six would be Ohio against yeah. Sherrod Brown, where he's up in a very red, deep red state. But the key for us is to make sure we've got a candidate who first and foremost believes in the principles. They're, they're, they've demonstrated over a long time 
that they are committed to smaller government, committed to individual freedom, committed to capitalism and free markets, are going to fight in Washington for those principles. But then we want to make sure they have a path of victory and that they're a strong candidate who will go out and raise the money they need, mm -hmm. who will have a team put together that, that will be ready to do that grassroots work. And that, that, that gets a little more complicated because you can find people who you know are really good on the issues, but they don't want to do fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, um, our view is it's going to be tough to win all five of those states. So let's put our resources where the candidate's willing to do the work on their side. And we're sorting through on that. We've got some good people we've been looking at um, and hope to be doing uh, more endorsements over the next year to be able to, to w help the Republicans win the majority and, and help expand the number of conservatives in the Senate. Uh, let's go out on this. You know, one of the big things that uh, is debated a lot in D.C., you know, is sort of who's backing who and which primary and, you know, how often, uh, you know, you're going up against someone or, or uh, going in tandem with someone else, you know, either the committees that you mentioned or, you know, uh, former President Trump, you know, currently his, his uh, endorsements obviously, you know, carry great weight when it comes to elevating people. When you are kind of sitting down and saying, you know, which candidate should we back? Do you have a process that you work through of kind of pros and cons? What's the way that you do it? Because you have to go on something more than just sitting down with someone and having a good feeling. Yeah, you're right, Ben. We, we probably spend more time and more resources on vetting these candidates than, than I think even the major parties tend to. Mm -hmm. the, the major parties have a, have a default if they think someone can be a self-funder they like that because then they don't have to do their work and spend money for them. Um, that doesn't tell you about what they believe in, doesn't tell you whether they can lead a, a campaign. Mm -hmm. So um, we it starts with a recruiting process. We've, I, my staff will next this year go out across the country, meet people in different places where we think there's an opening at the House level or we, we anticipate one in the Senate. Uh, we then bring them back to Washington and we, we put them through like a two, two and a half hour interview process. Um, some people have compared it to a proctology exam because <laughs> it's pretty direct and we get right to what, what makes them tick. Um, but then we also monitor how are they doing on fundraising, who's their campaign team. And finally, we, we're disciplined. We look at a poll to say, can this candidate have a path to victory? Now, oftentimes they start way behind. So it's not like, yeah, we're only gonna support people when they're ahead in the polls. But we ask a lot of probing questions. If the voters knew everything about this candidate and everything about the opponent, do they, can they win? Um, because then we can spend money on our ads to tell the voters about the truth about the candidate. Um, it's a long, complicated process. The discipline that we have in there is that the final decision I don't make that final decision, and, and the staff doesn't. It's my board of directors that vote on each one of our endorsements, and they do that to make sure that we followed the process correctly, and so we lay it out for them what we've done, the research we've done. Um, I think the, the we also work with, and like President Trump and I went back and forth when he was doing endorsements. I'd 
present to him people we really thought would be good candidates. Ted Budd's a great example of that in the North Carolina Senate race. Um, but sometimes he he had different he had lots of different advisors, and sometimes he would be looking for like media star power. So mm-hmm. we got Dr. Oz, and we weren't we didn't think he would be a great candidate. Um, Herschel Walker, everybody was super excited because he was a sports hero, uh, but they didn't do the research to find out what are the Democrats going to attack him on. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you need to do that research into the candidates to get the full picture, because especially the Democrat Party they're going to come after you. And so you got to be prepared for that. You got to know what those issues are and have a theory about how you're going to counter it to to win the election. Mm-hmm. David McIntosh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Ben, if I could kind of close on one note. Sure. Um, a lot of people have talked about uh, the divide in the Republican Party and the divide in the conservative movement with the the new MAGA Trump supporters and the more traditional Reagan conservatives. And then you've got the the establishment that is Mm -hmm. less interested in philosophy and more interested in titles. Um, One of the things we're trying to do at the Club for Growth is bring the best of both the MAGA group and the conservative group, find candidates who understand those principles of limited government, of freedom, free markets and capitalism, and but can reach out to the new voters that President Trump brought to the Republican Party by explaining to them how when you have economic growth, that means middle class families, average American families who are worried about their kids and their education and job opportunities. That's the best way to restore the American dream and make America great. So we're, we're doing that sort of fine uh, vein de- diagram intersection mm-hmm. between true believers who can reach out to the new voters and build a great coalition. Mm-hmm. I think that that's uh, an important task and a challenging one. And uh, I wish you good thank luck you. with it. Uh, thank you so much, David. My pleasure. Good to be with you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So one of the things that will be interesting going forward is that the supporters of the club for growth and uh, the supporters, the donors from many different uh, factions of the Republican party are trying to figure out who to back when it comes to the 2024 election primary uh, if they are not going to back former President Trump. And I think it's been very clear in the early months of this primary that the only person that Donald Trump is focused on is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. He has posted repeatedly about him on his own uh, uh, social media website, Truth Social, uh, going after him in many different respects, uh, in ways that sometimes seem like they are pretty clearly not written by the former president, given the language style involved. Just on the day that I am recording this, he has uh, posted something up that says, Ron DeSanctimonious will probably find out about false accusations and fake stories sometimes in the future as he gets older, wiser, and better known when he's unfairly and illegally attacked by a woman, even classmates that are underage or possibly a man. I'm sure he will want to fight these misfits just like I do. And he links to uh, a post about Ron DeSantis partying with underage girls at a drinking party while teaching at a Georgia school, uh, a post which is, in fact, uh, inaccurate in a number of factual senses. Uh, This is the kind of thing that we have come to expect from the former president. He's accused uh, Ron DeSantis of being a pedophile groomer, 
Uh, he's gone after Ron DeSantis' wife, Casey. He has, uh, through his super PAC, launched a legal ethics complaint against DeSantis. Uh, he has uh, criticized him uh, as being short because he wears uh, cowboy boots, uh, something that many politicians do. Uh, he has suggested that he is like Paul Ryan uh, or even more deviously, Mitt Romney. Uh, I don't really get his rationale for that. I don't see any way that there's any kind of overlap between Ron DeSantis, the Tea Party Republican, uh, and Mitt Romney, the squish uh, pseudo-Democrat. I, I think that one of the things that is so clear about this moment is that Ron DeSantis is going to have to decide at which juncture he decides to fire back. Now, what does that look like? From my perspective, DeSantis needs to go after the former president for something that's very clear. He's a loser. And I don't mean that in the personal sense, though you could also say that in the personal sense. I think you do kind of have to be a loser to be, you know, about to be arrested for paying hush money to a porn star over a potential affair. But I do think that one of the things that was very clear from Donald Trump's appearance on the main stage uh, in the 2015-2016 period was that he promised that people would get tired of winning, that his supporters would get tired of winning. Instead, what he has taken the Republican Party, conservatives, and his supporters through in one cycle after another is one bout of losing after another. His candidates, his endorsed candidates, those he backed in 2018, lost. They lost to Congress. In 2020, he lost the election. Whether you think it was stolen or not, whether you're going to make arguments about the nature of that election or not, that's fine. Well, he lost. And in 2022, no question, his major candidates statewide, across the country, in Senate election, after gubernatorial election, after one after another, after another, after another, they lost. The House barely squeaked through for Republicans in a year where they thought it would be a wave. And in each election cycle, he chose to dominate it. He chose to dominate the narrative. He chose to dominate the focus. He chose to have his issues and his positions be the priority, as opposed to standing back and letting fundamentals play in favor of Republicans as they ought to have. But I don't think that this is a situation where Ron DeSantis can really avoid calling that out, calling Donald Trump the ultimate winner, a loser, is going to be something that's dangerous, that's potentially going to backfire, that's potentially going to turn people off who are his most diehard supporters. And I understand when people say, you know, they voted for Donald Trump twice. They really would have liked to see him succeed. They would have liked to see him win again. They would have liked to see a successful cycle for the candidates that he endorsed. I understand all that. I, I have sympathies for that. But I also think that at a certain point, you have to acknowledge this guy is an anchor on our chances as opposed to being a boost. He's someone who brings us down as opposed to raising us up. And I think that the moment that Ron DeSantis actually decides to say, look, the nation is in too precarious of a position. We can't afford another lost cycle. We can't afford four more years of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But that's what we will probably get if you renominate Donald Trump. I think that that's something that, frankly, a lot of independent voters believe, a lot of conservatives believe. And I think that even for those Trump supporters who would like to see him back in office, you can't afford to go back down with the ship one more time. 
you can't afford to have this same thing play out again. And with a former president who's flailing the way that he is, throwing the kind of insults around the way that he is this early in the stage, it seems like we're headed for a repeat. Just another bad sequel, this time from Mar-a-Lago instead of Hollywood. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more next week to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.